1: Welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Faked radio traffic, rickety wooden landing craft, droves of dummies parachuting in. Military leaders have throughout history depended on tricking the enemy. We look at the artistry behind the trickery and how the best days of clever ruses seem to be past. And Christmas dinner means vastly different things depending on where you are. We look into the history of holiday menus and why, in Japan, Christmas means a barrel of fried chicken. First up, though. When a boat carrying hundreds of refugees set off two weeks ago, it was just the start of a mammoth rehousing project. Three years ago, more than 700,000 Rohingya, a minority Muslim group, fled from Myanmar. The Burmese army's horrifying program of ethnic cleansing drove them into neighboring Bangladesh. Since then, most have been housed in packed refugee camps on Bangladesh's coast. As those camps have reached breaking point, the country's government has decided to move many of them to a tiny island called Basan
2: The Rohingyas left the camps in Cox's Bazaar on coaches and were taken to Chattagram, which is a port city in the southwest of the country.
1: Susanna Savage writes about Bangladesh for The Economist.
2: And from there they got onto boats and it took less than four hours to cross the muddy estuary of the Meghna River and reach Bashanshah Island, which is no larger than a a large city park. And it's it's very recently formed, so it barely peeps above surrounding tidal flats. It's here on the island that the government of Bangladesh has developed a purpose-built model town intended to house Rohingyas.
1: And how much do we know about what the town is like? How does it compare to, to existing camps?
2: So far, Bangladesh has not allowed any visits or assessments of the new town, so it's difficult to say, but we know that it can house about 100,000 refugees. It cost the Bangladeshi navy about 300 million dollars to build, and they describe it as being safe and sanitary, and a much more humane alternative to the teeming and squalid refugee camps that have mushroomed along the jungly border with Myanmar. And they're quite incredible to see. It's just a sea of tarpaulin tents. The conditions are very difficult. In Monsoon, the whole of the camps are covered in mud and it's completely drenched and slippery and hard to move around. And it's very difficult to get access to water or washing facilities. And it seems like the new settlement in Bashanshah is much more spacious, much more sanitary. The shelters are made of concrete and brick. They have plumbing. So it seems like in that way, it is an improvement.
1: And have you spoken to anyone who's been moved to the island and what they think about the camp?
2: I've spoken to some of the Rohingya on Bashanshah about what it's like there. And I've also spoken to one resident of the mainland camp called Ro, who I spoke to over the phone. You'll hear the call to prayer in the background behind him. He actually climbed a hill in the camps in order to get good phone signal to speak to me.
3: First of all, I would like to change the name of Bastionshire Island. Let me call it as a Jail Island. You
2: know. He told me he wanted to rename
3: Bastionshire Island Jail Island. Located to that island at that time, it will be very difficult uh, for the people to, you know, to travel to other places. He said
2: it would be difficult
3: for people to travel if they wanted to leave the island. So It's very thanks, you know. We, we thanks a lot that the government of Bangladesh allowed us to stay in their country, you know.
2: He also told me they're grateful to the Bangladeshi government for taking the refugees in. But like many, he worries that an island exile would mean less hope of ever returning to their original homes in Myanmar.
3: It's right that we are the survivors, but now we are living all together. That is, we have a power of the, you know, main power.
2: He thinks it's better to live in large numbers close to the border of their home. Some
3: people will be in Basija, some people will be in the Bangladesh camp, some some people is already in Myanmar, some people is out of the country, I mean, in different countries. So it's making something, diversity within our community.
1: So the conditions are better on the island, but it's also more out of sight, out of mind, more isolated. I mean, what's the view of others about this, Uh, aid agencies, for example?
2: Yeah, I think there's been a lot of criticism of the island from NGOs and from the UN in part, Because the island is at risk of flooding, it's on a floodplain, and so that worries a lot of people. There's also limited access from NGOs to the island, which, again, the Rohingya have been completely reliant on NGOs to providing them care and food and health facilities, and so that's another worry.
1: And what does the Bangladeshi government have to say about those concerns?
2: I think the government is proud that in its own very crowded country, which has around 165 million people, it's aided and sheltered so many desperate refugees. But the government is facing growing internal pressure. Ordinary Bangladeshis, especially those living around the Cox's Bazaar camps, have grown less welcoming. Stories of violent crime and disease in the camps have spread, and these fears have been exacerbated by COVID-19. But I think a lot of the motivations behind why the government of Bangladesh has chosen now Uh, because partly, genuinely, the conditions in the camps are very difficult. But also there was a bout of violence in the camps in October between rival gangs. And I think that this, on top of the fact that The host community is growing very weary with the Rohingya. And in general, Bangladesh feels that it's it's had to shoulder the burden too long. And so I think that this move has, has been to sort of get them out of Bangladesh and to put them somewhere else. I also think in terms of the security threat contained within an island which has security cameras all over it, it's much easier to monitor them and to limit what Bangladesh perceives as a security threat from the Rohingya.
1: And what does all that tell you about the, the long-term prospects for the refugees then?
2: The long-term prospects for the Rohingya in Bangladesh are quite difficult. Restrictions on them in the camps are multiplying. They can't hold bank accounts, nor can they do paid work. The government resisted pressure from NGOs to grant education to children for a long time and had just started to let up on that at the start of COVID, when obviously those plans were halted because of the pandemic. Many, though, worry that isolating them on Bashan Shah would mean less hope of pricking the world's conscience and therefore less hope of returning home. They fear that as a permanent alternative to the Cox's bazaar camps, further away from Myanmar, their chances of returning are less. There are some NGOs and some rights groups, however, that think that the move to Bashan Shah has re-alerted the world to the plight of the Rohingya and may help to put pressure on the international community when it comes to forcing Myanmar to step up and be held accountable, and that that may in fact help them return back to their homes. But at this point, it's very difficult to say.
1: Susanna, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank
0: you very much. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world.
1: In the summer before the end of the Second World War, Europe was on edge, waiting for the launch of an Allied ground invasion.
4: If a French local on the coast would have looked up on the night of June fifth, the 1944, they would have seen 500 bodies falling from the sky.
1: Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. He's been looking back at some classic military history
4: as they landed there was a small explosion from each one roughly similar to the sound you'd expect of a paratrooper setting his parachute alight as he escapes nearby there were landing craft assembling there were tanks gathering radio traffic was crackling hinting at a landing about to begin across the channel. George Patton, a renowned general, stood ready to rally the first United States Army, but it was all made up, none of it was real. The paratroopers were dummies with pyrotechnic devices, the boats were made out of cardboard, the tanks were inflatable, and the first United States army group looked formidable on paper, but it didn't exist.
1: So, so why go to this trouble? There was, there was a war on.
4: There was a war on and Britain wanted to invade the continent, but it didn't want Germany to know where it would invade. And so it mounted this extraordinary ruse to divert German attention from the true destination, the Normandy beaches, to a different place. And it worked. Germany was surprised by D-Day. In fact, weeks later, it still thought that Patton's completely fictional army was poised to strike elsewhere. And that is, I think, a shining example of military deception, which is fooling adversaries into doing things that effectively harm their interests. And these kinds of ruses are, are still going on? They are. Look back a few months when Armenia and Azerbaijan were at war with each other in the Caucasus. Armenia was using dummy missile launchers on the ground to bamboozle Azerbaijan's drones. So they wasted their missiles. In a big standoff between India and China, China published images of missile launches that when you look very closely, looked a little bit like bouncy castles. They were effectively wobbly, inflatable missiles as decoys. The last big American effort at deception was in the first Gulf War, when America tricked Saddam Hussein. In fact, it even tricked some of its own sailors into thinking that an attack would come not over land, but by sea. And they did that by conducting big, showy, amphibious exercises. They spread misinformation through agents. And it was probably the last really big act of military deception that we've seen in warfare.
1: And and this is all just a case of, of all being fair in love and war?
4: Not everything is legal, not all sorts of deception. You can't, for example, fake a surrender and then whip your weapons out and kill the people who are coming to take your surrender. You can't disguise your tank as an ambulance and use it to ferry troops to the front line. But ruses, as they're known, are legal under the laws of armed conflict, In some cases, you can sort of bend the boundaries. So in 2014, when Russia seized the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine, they used unmarked personnel, what were called little green men at the time. And those troops would not have had the protection of the Geneva Conventions if they weren't wearing their uniforms. But that kind of masquerade, that kind of trickery, some of it is allowed. In fact, a lot of it is encouraged by armed forces and their military doctrine.
1: And how do the armies that that use these kinds of tactics come up with this stuff?
4: Most armies still think about deception as part of how they train officers. But I think it's widely accepted the art of deception has eroded a little bit since the World War II heyday of those incredible ruses directed against the Nazis. So modern warfare is waged by very professional forces, often with very advanced machinery. And deception is something that's closer to artistry. It's a creative enterprise. If you go back to World War II, it was zoologists who knew about animal colouring. It was artists who, who understood cubism and how it could break up perspective, who developed early camouflage. These were really, really eclectic groups of people who were doing incredible really acts of stagecraft rather than acts of warfare. But I think what's happened since then is, in the Western case, America's sheer heft, you know, this is a huge army that spends $750 billion a year, well, it has led to a more direct way of warfare that is built around overwhelming force rather than this incredible stagecraft in artistry. And
1: anyway, given the the state of, of technology and particularly that used in, in warfare, uh, some of the simple ruses you describe from World War II era wouldn't work these days.
4: No. I mean, if you're building a fake wooden tank for 1944, it has to be robust against someone looking at it from a plane above. If you're building a decoy tank now, you have to cope with satellites that can look at you with incredible resolution. Other kinds of sensors can look in the infrared spectrum and that can see whether you're generating heat. They can tell whether your decoy tank is rubber or whether it's metal. I think you have to deceive in more ways. So, for example, if you're pretending that you have a fake army unit somewhere, like they did in World War II, well, you now have to pretend that it also has fake social media activity if you want the adversary to believe that it's real. And I think that makes life much more difficult for the people doing it.
1: Does that not lead to a kind of fake arms race then? I mean, one one technology to defeat deception and another to defeat the defeated deception?
4: That's exactly right. So, for example, you have technology that now involves changing the temperature of tiles on tanks so that you don't just make them look like a decoy, you make them emit radiation and heat like a decoy. But there are limits to that kind of technology. So you can have the world's most intelligent camouflage tank... But if you have a soldier who walks out from the infrared screen and decides to visit the toilet in the woods, well, a heat sensors is going to pick him up. So perhaps the nature of deception and the way it engages in that trickery is going to have to change.
1: But it still feels like we're, we're getting away from the, the kind of stagecraft that you describe from, from previous World War eras. Do you think we'll get back to that?
4: Some generals hope we will. The US Marine Corps is thinking more about it. The British Army is is paying more attention to this issue. But I think this isn't just a question of technology. I think it's also a cultural issue. I think there are some people who see this as a little bit underhand, not something that good Western armies do. And to some extent, they've forgotten the legacy of those World War II ruses. In 1943, Britain tricked Germany into believing that the Allies would invade Greece. And they did it by taking the body of a dead homeless man. They dressed him as a Royal Marines officer. And then they planted misleading orders on the corpse. And they dropped it in neutral Spain, where the authorities found it and promptly passed on the information to the Germans. I asked a NATO officer from a European country, is this the kind of thing you'd still be willing to do? Is this the kind of thing that would still be considered legitimate? And he said, we'd still be prepared to use a dead enemy soldier. And then he paused and said, but the Russians and the Chinese would be prepared to kill him to do it.
1: Shashank, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. For more analysis like this and occasional glimpses of how the past can inform the future, subscribe to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash offer. The link is in the show notes. The triple chocolate panettone.
5: Kentucky! Christmas!
1: It's the subject of countless mouth-watering commercials.
5: Découvrez la bûche cadeau glacée. Because,
1: wow... Because
5: Christmas.
1: The food of Christmas is a key part of the celebration. For most, it just wouldn't be Christmas without a favored festive fare. But many dishes are a curious blend of the universal, the local, and the seasonal.
5: Animals in the Northern Hemisphere, at least, get plump and fat and ready for slaughter in the middle of winter, the time when Christmas falls. And so it's always been a time when there's been a lot of meat.
1: Josie DeLapp is The Economist's international editor and writes about food for 1843, our sister magazine
5: whether that's pork, whether it's veal, whether it's swans, whether it's rabbits. Obviously, every country has its own particular traditions, but I think it's that sense of just lavishness and feasting that really marks Christmas out.
1: But it's clear that in various places there are some foods that are specifically festive, they are specifically Christmassy. How do they enter the, the tradition other than just being, you know, plump or luxurious?
5: Right. So this is something that you do see everywhere. But what's really striking is the British Christmas traditional meal, which is very much a legacy of the Victorians in general, but of Charles Dickens and A Christmas Carol in particular, which has the roast turkey and the stuffing and then that kind of crowning glory, the Christmas pudding drenched with brandy and set alight. The Christmas pudding, the the plum pudding, was something that really became a marker of British and imperial identity. So in the 1920s, the Empire Marketing Board encouraged people to make what they dubbed the Empire Pudding, which was a Christmas pudding that was made with ingredients that only came from countries that were part of the British Empire. So they encouraged people to use currants from Australia and candied peel from South Africa and rum from Jamaica and sugar from the West Indies and clothes from Zanzibar and cinnamon from India. And that was a way of boosting the notion of empire and bolster the
1: empire's trade. So essentially the the plum pudding, the Christmas pudding, was a a marketing effort, the, the empire marketing itself.
5: Right. And that's not the only kind of marketing success story when it comes to Christmas. If you look at Japan, there's a very strong cultural tradition now of having KFC on Christmas Day. And that's thanks to someone from KFC in the 1970s who realized that Firstly, Japan didn't have a Christmas tradition and there was an opportunity there. And secondly, that there were a number of expats in Japan who might be missing their turkey and this would be a greasy substitute. So now people start ordering their barrels of KFC for Christmas in November.
1: But what about that sort of meaty centerpiece, at least in in America? I recall, for example, it often being ham.
5: Yes, that is quite common in America. It isn't such a rigid formula as you have in Britain. And that is partly because of the relationship with Britain. So Britain was developing its Victorian Christmas around the same time as America was writing its new national story and writing its new national traditions. People didn't want it to totally replicate the British Christmas. And so in America, you know, you can eat ham for Christmas dinner, you might eat turkey, you could eat chicken. For a long time, people didn't tend to eat beef because it was just too cheap to be considered a festive
1: option. And so I'm compelled to ask what you'll be having at Christmas this year.
5: Well, I will be doing a combination thing. So I will be having the traditional christmas dinner on on christmas day but actually on on christmas eve I will be having a more Austrian meal. My grandparents moved to Britain from Austria in the 1930s. And although they've celebrated Christmas in the traditional British way, they held on to a lot of the Christmas Eve traditions from Austria. And so you have a lightly pickled cucumber salad, it's often some kind of fish. So we'll combine those two things. And I think, you know, one of the reasons to do that, apart from the fact that the food is delicious, is that Christmas is very much about nostalgia. This year in particular, I think that's quite nice, both because there's a comfort in customs, but also because honestly, after a year of thinking day in, day out, what are you going to cook for dinner? On Christmas, there's no thought at all.
1: Josie, thank you very much for joining us.
5: Thank you, Jason.